Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. On Sunday, February 28th. Last day. 2021. Last, last day of February. This is it. This is it? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but it's not the last day of skiing. What do you say, why do you say that? Your last day of skiing, I think, was yesterday, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Finally. Much, I skied every day in you, February. You, almost, you skied almost every single day. That's yeah. kind of amazing. Well. For uh, I don't know that you're saying that like it's reflection, southeastern Pennsylvania on me. You're talking about the weather, not my skiing ability. But yes, uh, a lot of skiing, uh, a lot of snow. They said the most snow in New York in all time in all for time? February for February. Oh, okay. So the same must be true for Pennsylvania. Yeah. So now it's raining, raining, raining. Yeah. I mean the snow is still around, but, but it's, it's not. It's going to be skiable. March tomorrow. March, March sounds like spring. You know? I'm ready for spring. Okay. Super ready for spring. Yeah, well, someone's birthday's coming up in March, but we won't mention that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sad about that because <laughs> usually yeah. our loyal listeners will know yeah. that usually for my birthday, we head down to the sunny south. You've got to be a loyal listener to know we that. Go Don't put to, yourself down. We go to Richmond, yeah. Virginia, right? and uh, we have a podcast with the Gompers, with the Gompers. David and Cindy Gompers. Yes. So we've been doing that. For many years, it's we've a, been podcasting. It's it. called Gompert Wrangling. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, I'm we, sad we don't get to do that. I'm, you know, I'm missing the food. I'm missing the fun. We had the last restaurant meal in Richmond, Virginia, the last time we were down there. They, they yes. were basically walked in the restaurant. They said, "This is it for us. We're empty, but we will serve you tonight." We were the last ones there. No masks. Yeah, no masks. And, and, and there the, were there was only one other table. We we were a large people. party. Yeah, yeah. We, we made it worth it a while, uh, but that was it. <laughs> And, and uh, uh, we, we shut the city down, and then we and left. Boy, we had no idea that uh, a year would later be... we'd be the same same deal. Yeah, yeah. I, I really thought we we heard on the radio on the way home. Yeah, coming up uh, ninety five. Yeah, that uh, you know restaurants were closing down, mm-hmm. and I, and I also heard that my schools were closing down and going remote. Right. And uh, I thought, all right, so this will be a couple weeks, whatever. We'll get over the hump. You were wrong. I was totally wrong. Yeah. So there so, you have it. But, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, right? That's what yeah. we're looking for. I actually to. don't think we're going to a restaurant for my birthday this year. No, we're not, uh, for obvious reasons. But, uh, you know, the, the, the day will come. We'll still live it up. Though. Yes, that's we, we will. We will live it up. That's for sure. Um so we saw a movie this this week, uh, you know, with an ironic title. Yes, it's called "I Care a Lot." And uh, did we care a lot about the movie? No, no, not really. I mean, I don't want to put it down too much. It wasn't terrible. It, it was what we used to call a TV movie. Uh, now, in terms of quality, yes, and you know, which meant that you didn't have the effort or thoughtfulness or uh, intellectual heft that might go Complexity. behind a real film. It wasn't yeah. cinema. Yeah. It was something between a TV show and uh, a but film. But we can't say that anymore. I know, it's too because confusing. Because TV shows have gotten quite sophisticated. Right. And uh, here, here's the funny thing. You know, this is a movie with uh, Rosalind Pike uh, and Diana Weist and Peter Dinklage, and it's a story about a scam involving being declared the uh, guardian of an older person and putting that person in a nursing home and raking money in. We don't have to go into great detail. But it's presented... What, what, first of all, it was okay. It wasn't great. Uh, let's leave it at that. But, you know, it's, it's, you, you might like it. it it's, a, it's all right. It's, a, it's what one calls a dark comedy. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, uh, except but, it wasn't uh, that dark and it wasn't that comic. But uh, <laughs> I will say the, the Philadelphia 
sports shows I listen to. The, the uh, you know, that is a an easily defined group, as you can well imagine. And those folks loved it. They were calling in. They say, you know, I know I'm supposed to talk about sports, but I see a movie this weekend, you know. So they all liked it. Uh, but what kills me about it is you have people writing about what's the movie about? It's about the dangers of capitalism gone awry, gone amok, and how you can do something that's completely legal. I've just recently read. And, and yet highly unethical. And the fact is, it has nothing to do with capitalism. And what they were doing was not legal. Uh, so uh, people aren't quite getting it. But uh, that's But fine. in any case. Anyway, we saw it. The, if you see it, it, w- it won't be awful. Diane Weist, who plays She's pretty an, good. an older woman that yeah. they're taking advantage of, yeah. kind of gets the last laugh. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. There you have it. All right. We don't have much more to say about that. But let, let's get to what, we, uh, what we've what we uncovered in the newspapers. Cause this is well, this has been... No, this has been all over the place. Oh, you that, sto- yeah. Uh, this, this, this is a story. It's very Lucia rare. Lucia de Klerk, a 105-year-old resident of a nursing... of a you know care facility in um, New Jersey. Manahawken, I think. Uh, actually tested positive. Yeah. For COVID on her 105th birthday yeah. after having both shots. Right. And uh, she survived. Yeah. Well, first and of all. And she attributes it to prayer and gin-soaked raisins. Yes. Yeah, so slow, slow down. Give, give her the name again because that didn't come out too Lucia close. de Clerc. Lucia de Clerc. That's number yeah. one. Now, now, now here are the She's thing. She lived is, quite a life. Now this, quite a life. This has got She made it through the Spanish flu. Well. Okay. Uh, yeah. And she's had, I don't know, she's had three, maybe more husbands. This has gotten a lot of coverage, but you felt you wanted to cover it anyway. We usually don't cover something that's gotten a lot of coverage. But it must because be the gin. Don't, don't want to be redundant. But you, it must be the gin-soaked raisins that has you jazzed up. Yes, because you know I'm a believer in gin-soaked raisins. Now. <laughs> It's not just any raisins, right. okay? You can Google it. Uh, it's it's got to be the golden raisins. I forget why. All right, I started this a while ago. But isn't it because you put it in ice cream? No, it not it. That's not because. First of all, uh, I have been known to ginseng raisins are among other things. I guess a uh, considered a uh, home remedy for arthritis. Oh, is that right? Yes, Larry King. Yeah. Was a fan. Okay. Okay. I think he gave out the recipe. All right. Um, and so you uh, soak the raisins in gin and then eat them. Okay. Well, you know, I'm not a big gin drinker. I'm not a gin drinker at all. And uh, I didn't really um, go for the sitting around eating the gin-soaked raisins. But I thought, hmm, hmm, you know, being an ice cream maker person. Yeah. And one has heard of rum raisin ice cream, right? Right, right? So why not gin raisin ice cream? Yes, and here's the secret, the, the, the dirty secret you're not telling people. That one of the challenges in making ice cream is to make sure that when you don't use artificial ingredients, it doesn't become too hard upon freezing or refreezing. And having alcohol mixture helps the ice cream maintain an agreeable consistency, correct? Yes. Without, the other way to keep it uh, that way is to add tons of sugar. Right. But of course, you don't want to do that either. If you can avoid you know. it, right. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so I invented this recipe and, uh, you know, we, we eat it for... Medicinal purposes. Is that why? You know? Okay, now and, I know. And uh, so now we know. We're going to uh, 
It's good for us. It really is good for us. Lucia said so. And I just want to say, the funniest thing, This uh, I read the article about her in the New York Times, and there were fabulous uh, um, comments in the comment section. Right. Uh, for instance, one from Boston, uh, Massachusetts. Here I am riding an exercise bike and lifting weights. Gin-soaked raisins. Genius. Okay. And then Frank from Ohio writes, The alcohol in the gin extracts the resveratrol in the grapes and increases its metabolic availability. That, along with the juniper berries in the gin, help prolong life in humans. Really? Gin was originally developed by monks in the Netherlands a long time ago as a medicine. Really? But don't tell anybody it could bankrupt Social Security. No. You know, I thought gin was all about uh, Englishmen drinking it in India because that's the way to beat the heat, honestly. Uh, no, wasn't it also a cure for malaria or something? That too, possibly. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. With quinine? Yeah. Um, and then Carmen from New York City writes, cute, that she credits her Catholic faith and healthy eating. I bet the vaccine did most of the work, though. Science works. So anyway, there, there are a lot of... Uh, How could the vaccine work? She got the, the COVID after she got the vaccine. Well, maybe she feels it, um, you know, minimized. Yeah, maybe. The uh, yeah, I'll stick with the gin-soaked raisins. Thank, thank goodness. Of, All right, that's very impressive. Yeah. So, so yeah, gin-so- uh, gin-soaked raisin ice cream. Mm-mm. All right. Mm-mm-mm. All right. So here's another timely story. Oh, this did not get that much publicity. Obviously, you had the crisis in Texas brought on by the snowstorms, and you had the power grid going down. And uh, quite a bit of fallout from that. People have been in a terrible state. But one positive thing, apparently, is that people have been getting a lot of relief in Texas from a grocery store chain called the HEB Grocery Store Chain, which is uh, unique to Texas. Uh, apparently, they're all over Texas, but only Texas. Only Texas. A little bit of Mexico. But the only state in the U.S. that they're in are Texas. And they have ultra-loyal followers, in part because they're supposedly logistical geniuses and can be counted on in times like this, like hurricanes and things like that, they come through and they came through again. As the Times puts it, the storm and its devastation have tested a notion of independence that is deeply ingrained in Texas in a sense that Texans and their businesses can handle things on their own without the intrusion of outsiders or the shackles of regulation. But but for many Texans, H-E-B reflected the way the state's maverick spirit can flourish. Reliable for routine visits, but particularly in times of disaster. And they've come through. I mean, I won't go into the details, but apparently they had water. They had all kinds of things that were just seemed impossible to get. And yet you had these interviews with all these folks who were regular H-E-B customers emerging from the store saying, I live and die with this grocery chain. I go all the time. I knew I could count on them in times of crisis. And in fact, I could. And uh, they got tremendous relief from going there. So it's a good story. Well, we've been talking for years. I I remember once we were in Richmond and the subject was grocery stores. And how grocery stores have a a tough time succeeding. So uh, this uh, chain seems to know something that uh, everybody else does not. Um, they understand what Texans want. They cater to their needs, their uh, you know, loyalties uh, of the customers. 
They've really uh, uh, developed the, the loyalty. Right. And there's the, do you see the, do you yeah. have the quote there where the one woman said, uh, um, well, this is the quote I like. Is the, All right. You, you say the quote you like. Well, the quote I like is they say, you know, H-E-B is local and I'm local. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the wife of this couple says we've been shopping there for 50 years. Um, yeah, you have something well, else? you know, when people were standing online uh, to get in, yeah. uh, they handed out uh, flowers. Oh, that's them, right. They did okay? hand out flowers. And uh, this one woman said, I wish I had a boyfriend like H-E-B. Always there, gives me flowers, feeds me. Yeah, well, that's, you can't beat that. They, they got t-shirts to say H-E-B for president. Uh, and there are other longer quotes saying H-E-B is doing what the local politicians don't do. Uh, and, and in a sense, it's not that far-fetched. It's a different kind of institution. Uh, you'd like to think, frankly, that in certain circumstances, you can count on private institutions as well as public, maybe more than public, and maybe this is an example, or in fact, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, we've been finding that uh, when we can find one, the smaller yeah. family-owned grocery stores can be a lot better because they are more responsive to the tastes and needs right. of the immediate community. Well, so that's a huge success. But that's case. that's not easily found. Yeah. Uh, mostly, you know, you've got Shoprite, Giant, you know, the huge places. So, is it my turn now? Yes, you're going to talk about some. Uh, uh, well, this is a, Mary story. This is an interesting story. The discovery of perhaps the Williamsburg Bray School building, okay, which um, may actually have been uh, the oldest, which may be the oldest extant building in the U.S. dedicated to the education of black children. Now, this is uh, in Williamsburg, Virginia. It's actually an older building that had been moved from another location. It's a, a, basically a little house. Hmm. Moved from another location and then added onto and around. So you couldn't even tell it was there. But uh, doing some work recently, they, they knew this school had existed. And recently doing some work, they were able to ascertain that this is indeed... Uh, one of the buildings where this school, the William Bray School, not Williamsburg Bray School, uh, was located. It was a school that um, was founded in 1760 and lasted through 1774 at the recommendation of Benjamin Franklin, okay, who was elected an associate of uh, Dr. Bray. And Dr. Bray was Thomas Bray, and he was uh, from England, mm -hmm. and he was promoting the uh, literacy and uh, spreading literacy and Christianity to um, black uh, enslaved, um, enslaved and free, I think, blacks, in British North American colonies. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the main idea here was to spread Christianity uh, more than anything else. Uh, uh, nonetheless, it, you know, has kind of a positive uh, yeah, I think side the, effect. The idea of, of spreading Christianity and literacy simultaneously is, is, is kind of not unique. I mean, that, that, 
Right. Goes right. hand in hand. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the first successful, there are a couple of different tries in the U.S. The first successful one was in Philadelphia. After Philadelphia was a success, uh, um, Franklin recommended a couple other places, New York, Newport, Rhode Island, Williamsburg. And uh, the Williamsburg uh, Bray School was founded. It's estimated that uh, about 400 free and enslaved black uh, children were taught to read or were taught Mm -hmm. uh, in that school between 1760 and 1774. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had one teacher. That was Ann Wager. Mm -hmm. And once she died, it all kind of fell apart. Mm -hmm. And it was also, it was administered, it it, um, was administered by... uh, some you know local authorities but funded by this association the bray association in england Mm -hmm. okay and when they had more and more students and they needed more funding okay england said nah you know why don't you get the slave uh, holders to help pay and they they could not get the slave holders to help pay so you know it was it, it was a difficult um Situation. Many slaveholders uh, were against having uh, their slaves educated mm-hmm. uh, because it might uh, arouse, uh, you know, facilitate rebellion. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Um, on the other hand, uh, aside from spreading Christianity, uh, uh, some people felt that uh, it would actually increase the value of the slaves because they could perform more sophisticated tasks than just menial mm-hmm. labor. So it's not the most altruistic right. effort, really. Right. Okay, It's very complex, but it's a very important part of the history of uh, education um, and uh, um, the whole history of uh, slavery in uh, the United States. So that's kind of interesting. They're going to, uh, Williamsburg is actually going to uh, rebuild and renovate uh, this uh, building. Okay. I mean, they've they've had, um, they've had educational performances about it. They have a woman performing as the teacher, et cetera, and discussing what was done. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Well, that is interesting. So Florence Birdwell died. Florence Birdwell was a voice teacher and I can't remember whether we talked about her or not. I certainly remember reading about her uh, a year or two ago. And the reason uh, I was reading about her because the Times did a feature on her right before the Tony Awards. Uh, the Tony Awards that year of best uh, uh, musical actress, uh, the competitors included uh, Kelly O'Hara and Kristen Chenoweth, both as well-known as you could possibly be as a, as a female uh, musical comedy performer. Well, it turns out they had the same voice teacher, and that was uh, Florence Birdwell. Uh, and she was, um, she came from Oklahoma. It happens to be where Chenoweth comes from. I don't know what her connection was with Kelly O'Hara. But in any event, she became a very well-known teacher. She uh, had a promising career of her own, at least it was thought to be the case, in 1945 when she was a young person. She was going to head to Broadway. But in fact, she endured an infection which damaged her whole her larynx, 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 how do you pronounce it? Larynx. Larynx. Uh, and uh, she became a teacher. Um, and there are all kinds of testimonials here in the obituary, uh, in particular by a woman named Barbara Fox, who became an opera performer, who says she was a real mess 
and uh, Florence Birdwell uh, centered therapy and, and taught her how to sing correctly, etc. Well, literally saved her life. That, well, the quote is the quote is when I say that Florence Birdwell saved my life, I'm not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but she was a tough cookie. Well, she also Apparently she recovered. She didn't uh, skim skimp on the criticism. No, she's uh, very tough, uh, unsparing in her criticism. Uh, she did, by the way, it was tough physically, too. She later was able to sing in the late 50s, although they say in a lower register, and she would perform uh, annually, do sort of a one-woman show as she got older. But you talk about being tough. They have a quote here from Kelly O'Hara, who uh, talking about Florence, said, she ripped me down, she tore me apart, but then she built me back up, and every single bit of it seemed to be the path that I was supposed to be on. It never scared me, just made me feel right. Uh, and during her Tony, the Tony that year was won by Kelly O'Hara. In her speech, she uh, thanked Professor Birdwell for giving me wings. So there you mm. go. Well, museum update. Oh, yes. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, go ahead. We don't have that too often. No, much in waited. these uh, COVID times. Everyone's anxious uh, for this. But the frick. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The frick. Uh, the frick. Which was uh, a um, the mansion yeah. of Henry Clay Frick. He leaves Pittsburgh, builds this fabulous Beaux Arts townhouse. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, that's where we see all this great art today in his house, yeah. and it's somewhat decorated like a house. Okay, like a very fancy house. Yeah. All right. It's in, you know, different, basically small rooms. There are curtains. There are, you know, there's a wall coverings, et cetera, and so forth. Well, the Frick is about to go through a major renovation, like big time, like for years, okay? Which, and it will even include some of the upstairs, mm-hmm. okay? No one's ever been upstairs. No, the public hasn't been upstairs in the Frick. I guess they have offices up there or whatever. I don't even know. But uh, they're doing a big renovation. So the, the, the idea was, gee, what are we going to do with all the paintings, with mm-hmm. all the works of art? Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, you, you don't want to shut down totally uh, during something like this because people will forget about you, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so um, long story short, they find a place to go. The old Whitney Museum. You know, on Madison Avenue, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the Whitney moved downtown and uh, the Metropolitan's been uh, using the Whitney um, for exhibitions. But the Wet- Metropolitan, you know, is, uh, you know, strapped for funds. So the idea that the Frick would like to rent some space for a while is pretty cool. They end up with the whole building. And what's interesting about it, now you know what it looks like. We, we call it very modern, of course. Right. It's not like it's contemporary. It was built uh, in the uh, 60s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the date here, but uh, it's a you know, famous brutalist Marcel Breuer uh, building. You know, interesting building, uh, but, uh, you know, a totally different style in terms of galleries. And what's happening is they've figured out 
how to display the works of art there. They were like, do we try to pretend we're recreating the actual rooms of the Frick and fuss them all up, you know, which, uh, like they did at the New Barnes location is a replica um, in a new shell of the old Barnes collection. Um, and they went with a pretty minimalist approach. And from the pictures in the paper, it the paintings, the works look fabulous. Well, why would the background mean so much? I mean, it's not like the the backgrounds, the surroundings in the Frick were so oh, awful. Oh, the backgrounds means everything. You know, but, but the Frick interact with each other, yes, but, okay? But the, it's not like they were previously hanging in a barn. I mean, the Frick is, is a real deal. The way, no, but the way you see things and yeah. what you see yeah. can really uh, vary. Determining, depending on what's next to it, what's surrounding it, what's not surrounding it, you know. Uh, also, in terms of the color, what uh, causes uh, colors in the painting to jump out at you, enhances them, you know, complementary colors. Well, the principal thing I noticed um, was that there was more space in the new space. And it, it seemed to be less crowded and less uh, well. They less, are less they, juxtaposed uh, with other well, paintings. The paintings are getting more of their own space, right? That's which what al- I mean. allows for better viewing, better contemplation. But I, I, I think that they're really looking different, which is just helpful because, of course, it's uh, you know uh, their collection is you know pre uh, eighteen fifty, yeah, and uh, you have um, you know. Rembrandt and Ingres and David and, you know, um, those works can actually, I think, speak to people in a different way mm. when uh, they're not sort of hindered by this, um, I don't know, ambiance of uh, the uh, robber baron <laughs> uh, mansion. But anyway... One of the things that this article did for me was remind me about the Frick's wonderful series, Cocktails with Curators. Yeah. Okay. So every Friday at 5 Eastern Standard Time, they post, maybe not every Friday, but on on particular Fridays at 5, they post a... um, um, Video? What you call it? A video. Yeah. So they stream something. You they can... stream a, you know, a curator. Yeah. Uh, and you've watched this? Yes, I've watched this. Oh, okay. And first, the curator makes a cocktail oh, that yeah. has something to do with the theme of yeah. the, the discussion, gives you the recipe, also gives you a recipe to make it as a mocktail, mm. if you prefer, and then goes on to... Uh, talk about a particular uh, painting or series of and paintings. And it's interesting? It's great. Really? Really? They are really great. Really, Tamsin? Yes. Oh. Yes. And no, 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 no. Yeah. I, I'm serious. I have... Because I've heard curators talk. Yes. Okay. I have taken you to some very bad talks. At the Metropolitan Museum. I have suffered through... A, a serious museum. I have suffered through yeah. some very good curators giving very boring right. lectures. Right. And I've also suffered through a lot of well-meaning volunteers yeah. uh, doling out misinformation in, in museums and you know giving dull talks. But... Yeah. Uh, these Frick uh, cocktails with curators, and you just go to the Frick and just uh, you know just Google uh, 
cocktails with curators. Now, once it, it goes on YouTube, right. okay. So if you miss on Friday night, the fun thing about Friday night is people there's a chat going on and yeah. people say hello from australia right. or make some kind of comments mm-hmm. but it and it's I don't, it's not that long i think they're like 40 minutes mm-hmm. um but they really are well done they're interesting they're humorous they're not overly didactic but they answer questions you have okay. in your mind um so you know i i have uh, i'll think about it uh, high hope not not necessarily for you but uh, I really, you know, there's such an overwhelming yeah. amount of stuff to stream now. Yeah. Okay. I think we're like up to here with this stuff. But should you have room in your streaming yeah. day right. for one more thing and you're interested in uh, art, yeah. the Frick well, series all right. Listen, somewhere to go. Uh, you know, streaming, uh, Yeah. Look, I, I, you know, it's funny. It, 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 that's what, in a sense, that was, was amazing about the Florence Birdwell story, that she's in Oklahoma, and she becomes the voice coach for, for these two huge stars, Kelly O'Hara and Kristen Chenoweth. That seemed impossible. But now, with everything streaming, the world's different, right? And uh, maybe... She didn't this, stream her classes. No, she didn't. She was able to do it in person. That's, that's what that was remarkable. But your point, that you have people now from all over the world who are able to share in this thing... And it is successful. A lot of the streaming stuff, a lot of the Zoom call stuff is not terribly successful. Yeah, look, uh, I am taking your word for it. If I read it in the Times, listen, I, have I would not. I listened to them talk about paintings I wouldn't be interested in in a yeah. million years, and, and I have been fascinated. All right, all right. You're a tough, uh, you know, sell. So uh, I'll take your word for it. People should take your word for it. So there's nothing about GPS you probably would not have been interested in, and I'm not going to belabor it too much. But they make two interesting points, Okay. Global positioning system. We all rely on global positioning system. Uh, where does it come except from? Except you. Oh, oh, ex- except me. That's a- <laughs> you avoid it like the plague. There are three points I'm going to make here. Uh, okay. One is where does it come from? Because, it, you know, where does it come from? Uh, it turns out that it exists courtesy of the Defense Department. So every time you, next time you want to put the Defense Department down, think twice. The Space Force, which I think is part of what we used to call the Air Force, and the Coast Guard are responsible for its operation. So there's that. Number two, what's the science behind it? I'm not going to belabor this, but it's interesting to me that it's based on something that I sort of have an understanding of, although I can't really I collect all the dots. Like the aliens are up there in the sky yeah. and, uh, you know, little requests are beamed to them right. and they can immediately figure out the directions and beam it back to yeah, you. You probably um, do. But uh, it, it actually goes back to the Doppler effect. Which means it goes back to 1842, when Christian Andreas Doppler described how motion affects the frequency of sound waves. And this I know you learned in school because I, I know I did. In school. Yes. So as a train approaches, the the pitch of the train whistle goes up because the frequency of the fr- sound waves goes up. And as the train goes away from you, the sound goes deeper, lower. And that's because the frequency of the sound wave goes down. And based on that relationship, GPS is able to develop positioning because you can see how things are moving and what the that distance is. is as between... clear as mud to me. Yeah. All right. 
The Doppler effect I is one of the my few. My theory th- is a lot more. I will say this: I, I, of all the things you learn in science and especially physics, which can be really tough, the eye when when people get are given that explanation, kids are given that explanation in school. You know, when something's coming, like the ambulance, whatever, the the pitch of the sound changes. People, kids do say, "Well, that's true. That's right. I never thought about that." And that is where it comes from. All right. The third thing, I'm jumping to point three, the last point on GPS. And this you're not going to believe either. According to the Times, even though everybody uses their phone for GPS, they say, no, use the system in your car. Oh, that is complete bullfest. I'm telling you, and I'll tell you what. No, They say that notwithstanding that everybody uses their phone because it's convenient or used to using their phone, uh, that... Especially in the last few years, the car manufacturers have put a lot into their GPS, and their GPS is superior to what you have in your phone. Too late, baby. Too late. <laughs> hey, I have used such pitiful. I understand. I've had, but that's why I'm, I'm here to let in you know. Car navigation. The, the tide systems. has turned. The worm no, has turned. No, here. not going back. All right. All right. I'll, I'll, everyone else will benefit from this, but not fine, you. So fine. next I'll time just, everyone gets in their I car, limp along. Put your phone away and use the GPS. With Mrs. Google. You'll thank me for it. Huh. You'll thank me for it. And uh, All right, you know, this is just a short little lessons. thing. Just yeah. uh, I was amused. An article in uh, the New York Times food section about a bigger chill: the two fridge life. The two fridge life. And they point out that many people have a backup refrigerator. Yes. Okay. And uh, that's so true, isn't it? It is true. Um, I remember the like old refrigerator in your parents' garage. Okay. I'm not even sure it worked at all. Okay. Uh, was it even work. plugged in? Well, part of the magic of the backup refrigerator. Uh, which seems it's over- your old refrigerator. First of all, before I'm not going to apologize because people are going to say, "Well, gee, people with money have a backup refrigerator." The story says no. The story says, even this cuts across all income levels. As a matter of fact, sometimes the highest percentage of two refrigerator families are lower income. All right? So it's not exactly what you'd expect. Uh, But they also say one of the reasons is that some people have an older refrigerator, and the older refrigerators last forever. And that's the story of my parents' house. update the kitchen. Right. And the one thing you want is a new fridge. And you put it in. You and you take the old one. And you can't... Th- First of all, it used to be harder to get rid of your refrigerator. Yes. All right. But you also... You couldn't want it. You didn't want it to part with it. So my parents took the older refrigerator. It was, by the way, it was all metal. There's no plastic in it. They put it in the garage. And when I say old, I'm going to say 1954. It was yes. operating yes. until we uh, sold that house. It was not operating. A, a year and a half ago. It was ago. not operating, so but it, it was there. It went for 60 years. You put beer in it, and you wouldn't know it because my father didn't really drink beer, but uh, it stayed in the refrigerator. There was beer, and there were and those nothing little pony cans of Pepsi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were certain and things there. Yeah. They seemed cold. Yeah, they were. I think because in the winter, it's cold in the garage. The refrigerator worked like a charm. Anyway, they say, of course, a lot of people do that. Of yeah. course, you know, the first thing you notice is that, uh, you know, it's the old brown or avocado cover- colored uh, um, fridges that were popular Years ago. No, no, no. Mine was older than that. They yeah, only came in white. Much older than that. Right, but right. Uh, speaking for people today. And one of the reasons it's, uh, you know, uh, couples that tend to have these backups is because they have been living there long enough that they've updated their kitchen. Yeah. And they have an old refrigerator. Well, maybe but also a... they're entertaining or whatever. You never have enough room. But it uses power. all the things. The problem is it uses, it uses power. They say that actually now... 
Um, the refri- refrigerators now are so efficient. Yeah. They just use a fraction. But the, the old power. ones the aren't old like ones, The old ones are still sucking it up. But I, I was interested that you're right, that, uh, you know, um, it's all kinds of people. Nearly 20% of black Americans have uh, the second refrigerator, 22% of Latinos and 23% of Asian Americans. Um, so it's across all kinds of right. groups that you would have this. Um, although some people have it for fancy reasons. They, uh, you know, have a new Jazzola kitchen and they want, uh, you know. No, we had that, that vintage refrigerator. The big event there was it had to be defrosted on a regular basis. And the greatest improvement in that, the defrosting of that refrigerator was the invention of the hairdryer. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Prior to that, it was, my mother was putting uh, basically pots of boiling water into the refrigerator to sort of break the ice flow. Yeah. Good um, times. And you know, in, in, uh, we had an old refrigerator, we had a backup refrigerator in uh, our New Jer- Jersey garage. Yeah. But right. uh, the garage was not very insulated. And, but in the so everything freezes. Even the beer freezes okay. if it gets really cold. <laughs> you don't want that. Uh, this is brief also. There was an article uh, about a Batman cartoon series. So why are we talking about that? Because yeah, <laughs> I give up. <laughs> because I have to say, I, you know, uh, I did a lot of child care when I was uh, younger. And, you know, when you were out and about... <laughs> And which included monitoring them on uh, weekend morning, Child Saturday, care. Saturday morning cartoon shows. And to me, the a one, lot? the one, we're moving on. The one show that stood out was You're straining your credibility here. Was a show, uh, a Batman show, Batman the animated series. It was called naturally enough, which ran from 1992 to 1995 on Fox. And I would watch this show with the kids, and I'd say, "This is really good. This is really good." Uh, and uh, why is that? Because Batman was had, you know, all kinds of things going on with Batman. You had the comics from a million years ago, then you had the campy television series, which we all enjoyed because it was campy and funny. But what this series did successfully was uh, it sort of took Batman seriously uh, and at the same time uh, had a very uh, clever and witty background and animation style and imbued the characters with a certain personality. And as the Times puts it, Batman, the series, was timeless and incredibly specific, creating a sense of a fully filled-in world. It's wonderfully perplexing, anachronistic landscape combined Art Deco accents with sleek, super-modern architecture. Uh, it It was great looking, it was clever, uh, and it's just nice to see X years later, someone say, you know what was good? That... Batman series, <laughs> that that Bat, uh, uh, Batman the animated series, and that and of course it had the voice actor. Uh, well, we mentioned before, Mark Hamill was the Joker. Mark Hamill of Star Wars. Kevin Conroy was Batman. Um, so it was fantastic, and it's nice to see it recognized. As they put it here, Batman the animated series was canny about how it mined the hero's lore. It adapted characters and plots from the comics. It drew tonal inspiration from the Tim Burton films and then went on to influence Batman properties that followed. It is now on HBO Max. If you have a child 10 years old, watch it. Uh, If you don't have a child, watch it anyway. That's my advice. And you asked me if I had ever seen these. Yeah, and you said no. Because I was involved in child care. Mothers don't do that. 
They don't. They, they don't watch Batman well, with the, the kids. While the kids are watching Batman, they're running around, finishing the laundry, making the dinner. Yeah. Uh, you know, etc. And, and so forth. Really, okay? and I'm, I'm important. I, I, we're I, not allowed to just sit there and uh, I, aesthetically uh, evaluate the cartoons. I was importing life lessons to the children. Apparently. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. No problem. Um. So the interesting thing happened to a mural. You know, we talk a lot about murals. Yeah. We have talked a lot about murals um, this year, it seems. Yeah. Uh, this mural is in New York, and it's a mosaic. Yeah. Okay. It's at the Martin Luther King Jr. Labor Center, 310 West 43rd Street. Mm-hmm. Okay. It um, is a... Monumental social realist narrative of labor union progress, bustling with human figures, rendered in colorful glass mosaic that harks back to the technique's roots in Byzantium. Okay, so the point is that it's a mosaic mural. It's huge. It does look very interesting. I've never noticed it. Have you ever... I think this is near uh, Martin Luther King High School, is my guess. But I haven't been in the city in a million years. It's 310 West 43rd. Yeah, that's where I think that is. So anyway, uh, and of course, mosaics. Yeah. All right. I love mosaics. Remember uh, the mosaics in uh, Ravenna? Okay. The Byzantine mosaics in Ravenna. I'm nodding. The the bicycle trip to Ravenna. Yeah. You know, it was just like uh, the highlight. One of my top... Yeah. sort of uh, art experiences mm-hmm. ever. Um, and, uh, of course, those are uh, from a whole nother time and situation. But uh, So the idea that uh, great mosaics still uh, exist is fun for me. This one was commissioned by the, uh, let me get this right, local 1199, Okay, uh, the Service Employees International Union in 1970. Mm-hmm. And the artist was Anton Retriger, or Retriger. Uh, I'm not sure really how to pronounce that. He was born in Russia in 1905. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's a huge mural with all kinds of figures and these enormous black and white hands and a quote from uh, Frederick Douglass saying, if there is, if there is no struggle, there can be no progress. Um, anyway, the union moved to another building, mm-hmm. and uh, so they were having. Uh, they um, hired someone, actually David Ajay, or Ajaya. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Who is a well-known uh, architect. He uh, is responsible for working on the um, African-American Museum uh, in uh, Washington, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was engaged to work on this building and they told him about this problem. They wish they could take this mural with them to the new building. And so they contacted uh, a glass artisan in upstate New York, Stephen Mioto, who, as a matter of fact, had worked on the original mural. Now, of course, the artist, uh, Retiger, whatever, uh, didn't make the whole mural. He designed it, okay? So they had all kinds of artisans working on 
the bits of glass, the tesserae uh, that make up the pictures in the mural. And so the, this one guy, Stephen, had actually worked on the original in 1970, and he knew it was embedded in the cement walls, mm-hmm. and you couldn't really move it. Mm-hmm. No way, no how. Mm-hmm. So they engaged. He said, I could, however, reproduce it in the new location. Hmm. And so he did. They couldn't fit quite the really? whole thing okay. in the same space. And yeah. they had to move some of it elsewhere. Um, but he recreated it. I mean, it's really kind of an amazing feat. I'm glad to know people are still doing amazing mosaics even today. And it inspired uh, the architect to design another set of mosaics. The um, head of the union had showed him some old photographs of all the monumental movements in the history of this union, uh, which largely uh, started out as a union. Um, most of the members were black or Puerto Rican, and it, it's expanded, so it's you know quite cosmopolitan uh, today. Uh, but um, he was... The architect was mesmerized by these photographs and wished he could convey them in some way. They actually created mosaics out of the photographs. They were able to reproduce the photographs mm-hmm. in uh, glass, you know, pixels, mm-hmm. more or less, um, and create mosaics out of them. Uh, and with of these striking images. So not only what was there sort of a a um, you know, restoration, a saving, a reproduction going on of these older methods, but the creation of a new mosaic method uh, uh, suited to the 21st century as well. Yeah, no, I'm trying to think. The area originally, it, it's pretty far west. Um, I used to play basketball at Martin Luther King High School, uh, but I know where that is. But uh, So the new location is where? The new location is... A loft building at 498 West 7th Avenue, a few blocks away. Yeah, that's not far away. Okay. Uh, but the old building is going to be torn down. That's yeah. uh, obviously why. So it's actually a block or two yeah. east. Yeah. And you can't see it yet. They're not, because of COVID, they're not really yeah, opening the building. But uh, yeah, All right. All right. So, interesting way to solve the problem. Yeah. So my last uh, piece here is about baseball, because we haven't talked about baseball, and yet we're almost on the verge of spring training. Uh, and this is the combination of or the interface of baseball and, uh, how can I say it, uh, sophisticated sociological uh, and economic analysis, uh, namely the book, the famous book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which uh, won all kinds of awards a few years ago. I think Kahneman got the Nobel Prize. Um, you read this book. And I read this book. Didn't you give it to Zeke? I did give it to Zeke. I, you're going to ask me next if he read it. I don't know, but uh, I wouldn't bet on it. But the thing with thinking fast, a lot of people. But you were interested it. in it. I was interested in it, and it's like uh, it is very. It's sort of an interesting theory behind it. Uh, it's just not worth 400 pages. It's probably you know could have been a magazine article, honestly, in my mind. But in any event, uh, there's real science, so they get all kinds of studies, which I thought were kind of wasted. But um, but. The theory is simple enough, and that is that uh, there are two uh, processes that are predominant in the brain. Uh, One is um, the slow, uh, careful thinking analysis you might bring to a difficult problem, which you take all the factors 
into account as best you can. And the other is the immediate reflexive action you have based on what I'll call muscle memory on an intel- of an intellectual sort, and you, the so-called gut feeling. Mm-hmm. And that these two are interposed against each other. And it's important to be mindful of these two processes existing simultaneously and not be carried away by the reflexive intellectual process that causes you to make all kinds of errors in judgment because it's not really that well thought out. Even though your gut is telling you to do something based on this muscle memory, you have to stop saying, no, have I really thought it through the other way? I mean, I'm making it oversimplistic, right, but so the truth is not much to that. Besides. What does this have to do with baseball? Because, and this goes back almost to Moneyball, Michael Lewis's famous book, um, because uh, baseball players, uh, I'm sorry, baseball general managers, baseball uh, executives, uh, baseball scouts have a tendency to look at a prospect and evaluate them based on uh, curb appeal, based on what the eye sees, based on who they associate with, looks just like so-and-so, moves just like this famous shortstop, hits the ball with the same authority as Aaron Judge. And then the, the, the wheels start clicking and they start co- creating a very strong impression, if it's Aaron Judge, a very positive impression based on the associations that go with muscle memory and a reflexive reaction. Whereas in fact, you know, if you look harder and look at the statistics uh, and look at uh, hidden data, you might find that the guy who's not six foot four, the guy who doesn't have the greatest build, uh, the guy who doesn't really look the part entirely, doesn't, as they used to say in Moneyball, doesn't look great in a baseball uniform, may be the better player. Because, especially when it comes to hitting, there's a hidden science behind hitting. Some people can do it, some people can't. It doesn't necessarily go with a guy who looks the part. And even though that seems awfully simple, that results in a lot of very bad draft choices. And conversely, it creates the opportunity for a lot of teams to pick up some very good players because they're able to look past appearances and delve into more subtle uh, characteristics. Um, and apparently this is now, be, I won't call it required reading, but apparently general managers talk about it all the time in baseball. The greatest acolyte described here is Andrew Friedman, who happens to be the, the president of the most successful team, which is Los Angeles Dodgers, which happens to be the team with the most money, so you can figure out how that works. And, uh, and the other people quoted primarily are people like Sid Meidol uh, and Matt Blood, who are associated with the Baltimore Orioles, who are the worst team in the major league. So I don't know what you really get from that. But, um, Do you think these guys are really reading the book? Sid Meidol swears that he reads the book, that he quotes it all the time. I will say this about Sid Meidol. Uh, Sid Meidel is a former biomathematician at NASA who earned master's degrees in both cognitive psychology and operations research. So as you might expect, what happens is Sid Meidel recommends uh, the book to people in his office and even uh, on other teams. And he says he gets two reactions. Some people get back to me and say this has changed their life. They never look at decisions the same way. And others say, Sig, thanks but please don't recommend another book to me. <laughs> I wonder where Zeke falls in that group. Well, there's the, the father-son relationship that further uh-huh. uh, complicates All right, it. very quickly uh, at the end, I know we're running on here. Yeah. Um, interesting story about uh, the tapestry Guernica. Right, and, and of course it's not a tapestry. It's a famous painting. No, 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 well, there is... A, there is a famous painting, I know, I Guernica, know. Right. Okay? Yeah. that uh, was by 
Pablo Picasso, right. and it was uh, commissioned for the 1937 uh, French uh, Paris International Exposition, 1937 Paris right. uh, World's right. Fair. It's about the horrors okay. of war in Spain. The, right, the, the right. Franco it was war. commissioned by the, you know, for the Spanish Pavilion. Right. All right. Um, from Picasso. And uh, it basically is, uh, depicts uh, the bombing of Basque Town, Guernica, mm. by the Nazis and fascists, uh, mm. you know, in support of the um, Spanish uh, nationalists. So what, what it ends up doing is bringing attention, worldwide attention, to the Spanish Civil War. Right. Now, the painting was for many years in the uh, Museum of Modern Art. Right. It's back in Spain because Spain is... Uh, Not controlled by the Nazis. Right. Okay. <laughs> Finally. It's yes. a democratic republic right. or whatever. Um, so, but in uh, about, uh, I think, uh, 1955, yeah. a tapestry of that painting uh, was commissioned by Nelson Rockefeller. Okay. And he uh, actually loaned it to the UN. Uh, I think uh, later, like in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's been on display in the UN. It's like the backdrop for a lot of their, you know, on the spot interviews and with the press, et cetera, right, sure. and so forth. So it's been there all these years, but Nelson Rockefeller Jr. has asked for it back, mm-hmm. has taken it back. Mm. So this is interesting. And you, I really wonder why. Well, maybe who knows? Does he want to sell it? Or well, maybe he's got a big bedroom. Does he have in a? Yeah, does he have a bare space in his? Uh, My guess is McMansion somewhere. That you'd need a very large space to. This is quite it. curious. Yeah. Okay. But this is an interesting painting. It's actually one of my favorite paintings because it was, in my mind, inspired by a painting by Peter Paul Rubens called Consequences of War. And did Picasso cop to that, or is that in your own mind? Picasso and I have not discussed it, <laughs> but uh, Picasso was a great student. I know the, Picasso had a lot of women friends. I, yeah, I understand no, that's true. He knew, uh, his daddy was an art teacher. He knew all the great masters. Oh, is that the right? paintings. He knew them quite, quite well. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but anyway, uh, I think I am the only person in the world who believes that. Well, now it's now everyone knows. Now everyone knows. Okay, so... That's all we've got today. Well, it's plenty. Plenty. All right. So this is it. I, I think th- I'm going to go on first dibs or somewhere and see if uh, Guernica Tapestry comes up for sale. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. You know, it might uh, be too much for the credit card, but whatever you can get. If you can get on the credit card, go ahead. Don't even check. All right. All right. And so until next week, this is Dan Abuhoff. Tamson Granger with Tamson and Dan Read the Paper. We'll be back. We'll see you.